This afternoon, we're going to look at Colossians 3, verses 4 through 8. So if you have your Bible open to that third chapter of the Apostles' letter, I'm going to read the text for us. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Now, I'm going to ask you to look over those verses and see if you see any particular structural pattern for the unit, perhaps accepting verse 4 which technically should be the end of the unit 3, 1, and following. We didn't have time to treat it last time, so I've added it in this afternoon. But nonetheless, I've given you a little bit of a hint. Do you see any structural pattern for verses 5 to 8? Then the New American Standard has some different uh, expressions, particularly in verse 5, and I, I, I want to comment about that later. What do you notice in verse 5 that also appears in verse 8? List. Yes, there's a list. How many are in the list in verse 5? And how many are in the list in verse 8? There are five in both verses, and so that common pattern does bind those four verses together, five through eight. But as we look at that pattern and what is being described in verse five, what is common to each of those words, each of those five words? Is there some commonality to the five of those terms? About what? About sexual relations, yes. The sins of the body, particularly the sexual members of the body, if we're using the apostle's word there in that verse, members, referring to the misuse of our sexual members. Now, what about verse 8? Is there anything common to each of those five words? Something a little more basic, yes, that's, that's, that is true. But there's something that's a little more, I should say, more specific, not basic. Mm, it comes from the heart. Lack of emotional control. Proceeds from what? Yes, from the tongue. <clears throat> These are the sins of the tongue or our verbal members. 
So with that pattern before us, we're going to uh, look at these verses, but we'll begin with verse 4, which, as I indicated, is more appropriately attached to verses 1 to 3. And I placed on your outline the Greek word parousia or parousia. And I'm wondering if you recognize it, and if so, what does it mean? Is that a word you've seen before or heard before? I see some heads nodding. Randy, you haven't? I've seen it when it seems like I remember Revelation or something. Okay. Reba said she's heard it before. What's it mean, Reba? Or what's it referring to? Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> Marge? The second coming, yes. Popularly, we associate it with the second coming. It is a Greek word in the New Testament, which means presence or arrival. Our Lord Jesus uses it with respect to his second coming in Matthew 24, 27, for instance, when he talks about the arrival or the appearing of the Son of Man when he comes in glory. And the Apostle Paul uses it amongst other places in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, when he talks about something that goes alongside or happens coterminously with the parousia, namely the resurrection of the dead at his parousia is the Greek word in that verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. Popularly, the presence or the arrival is attached to the second coming of Christ, to his coming, as Paul says here, in glory. You'll notice that phrase in verse 4. Well, where is he now? Between the first and second coming, where is he in the interadventual period? First advent, Bethlehem. Second advent, second coming in the future, we're in between. So this is the interadventual period. And where is he in the now time? According to our text, or according to the context, not verse 4, but the broader context. He is at the right hand of the Father, very good, in verse 1. So now he is there. And that means that he is not yet in the parousia, not yet in the coming, in the second coming, which is described here in verse 4 as appearing in glory. When we shall be like him, or we shall see him as he is, as 1 John 3, 2, wonderfully, beautifully, uh, <coughs> magnificently reminds us. All right, so we have in this section the now-not-yet pattern of the interadventual life and drama, the now-not-yet relationship of Christ to that interadventual age, now seated at the right hand, going to appear in glory in the future when he will come or he will be revealed. All right, now parallel to the now-not-yet, is the word hidden in verse 3, which stands in contrast to what word here in verse 4? 
when he is revealed, yes, or when he becomes visible, for that will be a visible revelation at his second coming. Every eye shall see him as he comes in the glory of his majesty. Now, Paul is drawing his Colossian audience into this drama. He is drawing them into the relationship of their place in the interadventual age, the age between the now and not yet. Is that any different for us? No, says Reva, very good. It is no different from us as it is from them. Even though it's 2,000 years removed for us, nonetheless, we are in the same interadventual relationship. We are in the same position with respect to the first and second coming of Christ as the Colossians were when they received the epistle. Therefore, there's no difference except we're a little closer than they were by 2,000 years. But in terms of the drama... In terms of what has been fulfilled, we are in the same place, redemptive historically, as they were redemptive historically. All right, our appearance then with Christ in glory, according to this verse, does not depend upon Jewish ceremonial ritualism. Remember, there is a group attacking this congregation with that suggestion. You won't be able to appear with him. You won't be revealed when he is revealed with him. You won't be participating in the glory unless you participate in these Jewish ritual ceremonies. So he hasn't forgotten this kind of subtle reminder that the glory which is to be revealed is the glory which is centered not in ritual ceremonies, not in religious rites, Jewish or otherwise, but is centered in Christ himself in his appearing. Keep your eyes fixed steadfastly on Jesus. Now, of course, this appearance of Christ in glory is not dependent upon mystical visions either. Remember, there's another group that we have suggested that's infiltrating or insinuating itself into this Colossian congregation, which is talking about the mystical visions of angelic worship and are arguing that that's the only way to glory. That's the only way that you will participate in that great worship event, which is part of heaven's entourage. No, Paul is saying, when he is revealed, you will be revealed with him in that glory, not based upon any ritualism or any mysticism, and certainly not based upon any pagan asceticism, which was common also in this culture and in this church's experience. Once again, I want to emphasize our appearance with Christ in glory depends upon him being in glory and having that glory in which we will appear shared with us. His history of being raised up to glory himself out of sin and death into perfect holiness and eternal life is the ground of our hope of glory ourselves. He joins us by his grace. He joins us through faith by his spirit in his person and in his work in that glorious prospect and that glorious reality. Notice the double revealed there. 
It's as if the apostle is subtly suggesting to his reading audience that he will be revealed and you will be revealed with him. It is a reciprocal relationship. What he has in glory, you will have in him in glory. What has happened to him happens to us in him, with him, through him, can bank on it. It is as certain as his being seated in that glory right now. And there he intercedes for you and me and for all believers. All right, so this fourth verse, as you can see, really is reflecting backward upon elements of verses 1 to 3. But it sets the stage once again for what's going on in verse 5. We talked last time about the rhetorical pattern here, so let's remind ourselves about what that is. First of all, how does this verse begin? And I'll ask you not to use the New American Standard unless you have the marginal version uh, to answer the question, because I want to make a comment there. How does this word, be, how does this verse begin, verse 5? Ours begins with an imperative, but the way you said it, it sounded more like... And what's the imperative you have, Randy? Put to death. Yes, put to death. <clears throat> King James says mortify. Now, the margin of the New American Standard does read put to death. But this phrase, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead, is a paraphrase of an imperative imperative declaration, and it is very awkward. Uh, This is a place where the New American Standard is not only infelicitous, it is confusing and in in some ways grammatically unsound. And and so I'm uh, happy to point out the fallibility of the New American Standard, though I prefer it in terms of its accuracy, generally speaking. All right, so the imperative is a single word in the Greek here. It stands in the emphatic position at the beginning of the verse. It should be properly translated as a forceful imperative, as Randy's reading, put to death, or the marginal reading, the New American Standard, put to death, or even the old King James word, to say put to death in one word, mortify, uh, carries, uh, uh, carries that kind of punch. So we're beginning verse 5 with an imperative. And as I said, we're reminded that we're in the paranetic section of this epistle. Now that means we have to remember a little bit about what we learned last week. The paranetic is joined to what? Reba? The indicative, okay, that's the, that would be the imperative mood. Here we're talking about the paranetic style, enjoined to the didactic style, remember? The didactic, that is the doctrinal or teaching aspect, followed by the paranetic or imperative aspect, and it is true in the moods of the Greek verbs, the Didactic is in the indicative mood, and the paranetic is in the imperative mood. Now, we don't want to break those apart except for simply discussing them or, or, or trying to get in mind what is under, underneath that rhetorical style. But in addition to that, uh, shall we say, uh, linguistic distinction or rhetorical distinction, 
There is a contrast here. What is that contrast? Verse 5 is emphasizing what? What's the imperative? What, what did you give us? What was the imperative you gave us? What's the death? What's the death? It was a contrast then. Death contrasted with life. with life, which is in Christ where it's hidden in God, correct? So you're going back up to verse 3 with a contrast here, which follows out of the indicative. The imperative is related to the contrastive relationship between death and Life. So, having died together with Christ, your life hidden with him in God, now put to death X, Y, Z. Now, there's another contrast here. What is it? There's another word there in verse 5, which is contrastive with something before. Earthly, contrasted with what? Heavenly, or that which is at the right hand in verse 1, or that which is part of the glory in verse 4, which Christ inhabits already, or even now. All right, so even here, the language that follows the imperative is included in the imperative. The language does not allow us to forget the indissoluble relationship between the indicative and the imperative, the indissoluble relationship between being in Christ and walking in Christ, living in Christ, obeying Christ, doing Christ's commandments. And so I remind you of that here, even as we have both elements of this uh, contrast, both elements of this drama, namely death and life, which is originally in our Savior, and death and life, which is mirrored in our union with our Savior. The earthly and the heavenly, which was present in our Savior, the earthly and the heavenly, which is mirrored in those united to the Savior. All right, let's remind ourselves that this is not moralism. We didn't talk about that last time. Moralism is, well, the moral of the story is... It's telling a story or it's giving an illustration and saying, well, the moral of the story of this particular with respect to ethical or life application and exemplarism. Jesus becomes, in this kind of approach, the great example. He's the great moral paradigm. Jesus is a moral exemplar. That is true. But he is not one who is being put out on a horizontal plane as if he is the one that satisfies your horizon. He is one who is transcendent and supernatural. That the moralist will never agree to. Jesus, as a moralist, is only a human exemplar. He's just as good as another good human being like Gandhi or somebody else. So the moralist does not treat Jesus as God, as the Son of God. He treats Jesus as a human example, a mere human example. Paul is not talking about that here. 
and Orthodox Christianity is not talking about it either. Moralism is the Santa Claus moral system. Do good for goodness sake. Be good for goodness sake. Santa Claus is coming to town, so you better be good for goodness sake. That is human horizontal moralism. It is not Christian vertical ethicalism. All right, so it's not, yes, go ahead, Ryu. No, it's 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 covenantalism. It's entering into what it means to be in union with the God of the covenant. So that's not a a horizontal or horizon. It's not a plane of human effort and human uh, ethical behavior. Okay, it's related to a vertical connection with the God of the covenant. That's the difference between biblical ethics understood, whether it's Old or New Testament, and pagan ethics. That is, ethics which are otherwise. All other ethics are basically horizontal. They're based on mere human principles, which leads us to the second one here. This is not meritism, because meritism is another pagan principle. That is, you're doing good for the sake of earning good rewards from the gods or even from the true God. You're doing it in order to make yourself worthy, to deserve, to earn to store up for yourself enough uh, points to balance your negatives. Your pluses balance your negatives as the scales of God's justice are adjusted. That's not what uh, Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about doing these things or being involved in these things for the sake of earning rewards or gaining God's favor. You've already received God's favor. In the grace that was bestowed upon you. That's the very meaning of the word grace. Grace is God's favor poured out upon his undeserving people. We already know we don't deserve anything. And therefore, if God rewards us, he's rewarding what he's already given. He's not rewarding us for the work. He's rewarding the work that he gave in us. That's Augustine's doctrine of rewards for a Christian believer. And it has been the backbone of the Reformed doctrine of eschatological rewards as well. All right, so this is not moralism in this didactic, paranetic, rhetorical style. This is not meritism. It is eschatological identification. It is heavenly now, not yet participation. It is, in this interadventual period, a semi-eschatological now, not yet reality. I want to underscore again what we did last time. I want to re-emphasize, as we'll continue this afternoon, I want to re-emphasize that our orientation is to heaven with respect to our ethical and moral behavior. It is not to the plane of the world. It's not to the horizon of the world. It's not to looking at to the best ethical patterns in cultures or subcultures or whatever America or Europe or whatever can produce. No, that's not what the Bible is teaching us. It is teaching us to look to heaven for our moral principles. Look to God himself and his moral character. Look to Christ himself, the Son of God, and his ethical character. Look to heaven as an arena of perfect morality, perfect ethics, perfect behavior. 
That's the orientation of our ethics. So, keep that eschatological identification in mind. If you've been united to Christ, then you are united to the arena in which he dwells, and it is from that arena that you are to think about your moral and ethical actions. All right, now, the list in verse 5. I'll use the vocabulary of the New American Standard. There is some uh, give and take with the meaning of these words, but I'll attempt to be as specific as possible as I think the apostle is being specific with using five distinct words. We begin with the easiest one to identify, which stands at the beginning of the list, namely immorality. And I've given you the Greek word for immorality that he uses here, porneia. And what English word do you see there? Pornography. Yes, that's the word from which we get pornography. Sexual immorality is what the apostle is describing by this word. All sexual activity outside of or in rebellion against God's purpose for our members. And in this case, as I am underscoring, members here means sexual members. Put away adultery. Put away fornication. Put away homosexuality. Put away one of the current fads, polyamory. Yes, it is gaining increasing acceptance with married couples who are agreeing to allow multiple sexual relationships from men and women inside the marriage bond and even encouraging it so that you have polyamorous relationships with married couples. All right, now, that's, uh, that's very clear what the apostle is rejecting here. Uh, that's also clear in other parts of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, for instance, amongst others. <clears throat> but this, uh, <clears throat> this type of sexual immorality is not consistent with the ethical or moral character of heaven. There is no adultery in heaven. There is no ongoing adulterous relationship in heaven. There is no fornication in heaven. There is no homosexuality in heaven. There is no polyamory in heaven or any other of the sexual sins. They are not there. Heaven's ethic is not that ethic. That is the ethic of the earthly sinful members, not the heavenly glorified reality or even the heavenly glorified body. All right, now his next word is impurity. The King James had translated that word uncleanness, and perhaps it's a little more uh, <clears throat> appropriate to think of it in that way because that's what the apostle is getting at here, impurity with respect to sexual cleanness. Sexual cleanliness with respect to the body and the mind, the impure or unclean mind, the impure or unclean body, particularly the body which has been ravaged by STDs or sexually transmitted diseases. 
and the epidemic that that type of behavior and activity has created in our own culture. Put that to death. Put it away. There is none of this impurity or uncleanness in heaven's arena. All right, the next word is passion. And here it might be easier to think of lust, that is, immoral sexual urges, thoughts, immoral use of uh, perverse sexual media. You might say, well, then what's the difference between passion and evil desire? I think the difference here is that the passion is the internal urge. The evil desire is the scheming and planning to fulfill the urge. It's the planning of seduction. It's the planning of dominance. It's the planning of sadistic relation. It's the, it's the plan of manipulation, sexual manipulation. The evil desires of the passions, which include uncleanness and immorality, being put into effect. Now, the last word may surprise you. He says, put away greed. We usually think of greed in terms of the accumulation of goods, property, like theft or amassing wealth. Obviously, he's not talking about that kind of greed here. He's talking about sexual greed. He's talking about self-pleasure. For all greed is selfishness, even sexual obsession is selfishness. It's fulfilling the sexual satisfaction of the individual so that the self and its sexual orientation becomes God, becomes the center of the lifestyle. It is an earthly obsession, devotion, and even worship. Oh, but that's not around anymore. Oh, yes, it is. Very much alive and well in many circles in our culture, as your news reports are now demonstrating. But it was part of Old Testament religious culture because this type of greed, this type of sexual obsession, was actually a religion. It was practiced in the worship of Baal. Baal was a fertility cult. He and his consort, consort rather, Astarte, were fertility god and goddesses, and they were worshipped through sexual activity, both prostitution and fornication. It was common in the ancient world. It's not just true of Canaan with, with Baalism. It's true of the ancient world in Greece and Rome and everywhere. All cultures have had this deviation or this deflection into the worship of sex as a god or goddess, as the case may be. So Paul is here putting his finger on a common, well, uh, universal problem, the sexual appetite, greedy appetite, cannot be satisfied until it is fulfilled, until it expresses itself in its own self-devotion, its own self-worship. That's why he talks about it as uh, idolatry. This greed is not God-centered. 
this sexual obsession is not Christ-centered because Christ's desire is for his bride. So Christ and bride-centered <coughs> sexual relation is the, is the emblem, is the model of the Christian sexual relationship. Randy. Covetousness instead of greed, because that does not imply necessarily the acquisition of material wealth. Yes, he uses a different Greek word here. Uh, I think I'm remembering this correctly. <clears throat> he uses a Greek word here than he uses in Romans 7, for thou shalt not covet, in, in translating the commandment. So uh, here he's, he's trying to distinguish this greed from the Tenth Commandment, in my opinion. I think I checked that correctly, but uh, I, I may not be right on the money there. But I think I, think I looked at the, at the comparison of the Greek. So he, he, he's, he's, using, he's using greed here in a way that he doesn't want to confuse his audience with coveting per se. That is, coveting goods, coveting property, coveting wealth. Here he wants this greed to reflect what he's talking about in every other word in this verse. Coveting sexual dominance or sexual satisfaction or sexual expression. So that's, that's particularly how he's defining it in relationship to the words in the context. At least that's that's the way I'm understanding him. Go ahead, Reba. Well, I was just going to flip back to Deuteronomy and it does sort of enlighten Deuteronomy where it says you shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his servant or his, you know, I mean, and if you apply this verse to that verse, it does sort of give a... They, they could reinforce one another. That is correct. Okay, any other questions or comments? Let's take a look at mortification versus via vivification. That's a phrase... <coughs> that uh, I'm using to express the, the, the Christian relationship here, not the pagan or immoral relationship here. Mortification means, as the imperative here in verse 5 was translated, put to death. What's vivification mean? Life? Yes. Well, the newness of life. So, <clears throat> put to death as... Christ has put to death these sins in his own death. He's put to death these sins for his people in his own death. The vivification or newness of life comes in relationship to Christ's resurrection life. So that means that heaven's life of glory is impacting our sexual activity. In this arena... That is, our earthly sexual members, we want to think of them as identified with heaven in sexual behavior, sexual morals, sexual ethics. We want to be vivified in our sexuality by that which belongs to our destiny, namely the kingdom of heaven. The apostle is calling the Colossians to live as those who are raised up and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Live that way. Think that way. Control your desires, particularly your sexual desires, in that way. 
that will limit you to morality, not immorality. That will keep you walking in cleanness, not uncleanness. It'll keep your passions true, passions within the marriage bond, not passions breaking out into all kinds of immoral relationships. It will make you worshipers and greedy for Christ and his bride, not for Baal and the gods of the sex pantheon. Okay, well, we've reached the time for a break, so stretch your legs and we'll come back and deal with verses 6, 7, and 8. All right, now verse 6, which is in the future tense, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. But we need to think about this in terms of the semi-eschatological paradigm. Namely, there is a now-not-yet aspect of God's wrath. The apostle has already talked about that in this epistle. Now, it's true he hasn't talked about it as a now-not-yet paradigm, as I'm explaining, but this is what it amounts to. If you turn back to the first chapter in verse 13... One of the elements of God's present wrath is the domain of darkness in which the children of disobedience live. That, of course, includes all of us originally or outside of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it underscores the fact that there is an eschatological now of God's wrath. Perhaps the strongest verse that expresses this is John chapter 3, verse 36, in which whosoever does not believe on the Son of Man or the Son of God, the wrath of God abides upon him. It's not something that comes upon him when he hears the gospel. It's abiding. It remains. It's there already. So there is a now present tense, present time dimension of God's wrath in darkness, Colossians 1.13, darkness in which those that dwell in that darkness love to live. They dwell in it with delight. They are blinded by that darkness. They refuse to see the light. You will not come to me that you may have life, Jesus cites when he's talking about this <coughs> paradigm of sinful depravity. Yes, Reba? Yes. Now, the second element here from Colossians is from verse 21 of chapter 1. You notice there the apostle says, You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. That wrath of God now responds to the hostility of mind and heart, which is hatred against God himself, his character, his morals, his kingdom, his son, his plan of redemption, etc. So, the present element of God's wrath is not only this domain of darkness under which the, in, in which they're trapped, but is also this hostility of mind. They willfully, with their hateful minds and hearts, 
oppose God and his kingdom and his son, the Lord Jesus. And final in chapter 2, verse 13 of Colossians, the final aspect of the present dimension of God's wrath is that they are ruled by death. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, ruled by the death wish, as I label it, the devotion of their bodies and minds to other lords, other deities, the gods of the drug dealer, the gods of the alcohol bottle, the gods of sex, which we've already described, the gods of power, political and cultural, the gods of money, which creates all kinds of evil, the gods of manipulation, how to control people by manipulating, the gods of dominance, control freaks who want to control other human beings by squeezing them under their thumb. These are present demonstrations and aspects of the wrath of God. So there is darkness eternal, that is true. There is hostility to God eternal, that is true. There is death wish eternal, there is death eternal, that is true. There is a not yet aspect to this wrath, that is true. But don't fool yourself, there is a present aspect to this wrath being revealed even as suffering, affliction, evil, and, and so on that go with the fruit and consequences of sin are present in our culture and in our world. So <clears throat> the wrath of God will come, but it is coming. It is in present tense coming upon those who are disobedient, those who are <clears throat> in the darkness, those who are hateful and hostility of mind, those who are dead in their trespasses and sin and promote the death wish of opposition to Christ and the Lord God and his kingdom. Now, verse 7. And you yourselves once walked in these sins. You yourselves once lived in these sins. These sins of verse 5 were common in Greco-Roman culture. They were common in Colossae. They were promoted. They were advertised. They were known. They were well known. They were written about. There were poems about them. They were made murals out of them. There were all kinds of horrible pornographic statues and so on from the ancient Greco-Roman world. Colossians had been there. These to whom he had written had practiced these sins. But they died to them in Christ. And they had been raised to new resurrection life in Christ. The life which is his life, holy, pure, and good. That is the life to which they had been transformed. Their past life was replaced and displaced in union with Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, joining them to the Son of God and to his Father, giving them the gifts and the powers of the world to come in their life. What a wonderful grace of God in his Son, the Lord Jesus, is present here in this verse. 
the grace of the Holy Spirit rising that Christian, rising that Colossian believer and setting them free. Setting them free by liberating them from the bondage and death and meaninglessness of porneia, of pornography. Come to Christ for true freedom from sexual obsession, from pornographic obsession. This grace of Christ set them free from the bondage and death of adultery. Come to Christ for true marital fidelity and chastity. The grace of Christ sets them free from the bondage and death of homosexuality. Come to Christ for joyous, natural, heterosexual fidelity and or chastity. Come to Christ, we're saying to the sexual sinners of our age. We grieve for them. We plead with them. Turn from your bondage. You think you've been sexually liberated. You think you've been freed. You haven't been freed. You've sold yourself into bondage and slavery. Christ can set you free. The Holy Spirit can give you the liberty that you're looking for. And if you listen to the testimonies to profligate adulterers and fornicators and homosexuals, and so on and so forth. If you listen to the testimony of those that have come to Christ, you realize what power held them in its grip until Christ really set them free. Their stories will move you to tears, but their joy will also cause you to cry, thank you, Lord Jesus, for such power as this. The Colossian Christians had experienced this. There were pornographers in that congregation, former pornographers. There were adulterers in that congregation, former adulterers. There were homosexuals in that congregation, former homosexuals. And on and on we could go with a list of other sexual depravities and perversion. But nonetheless, here's the reality of what came into the lives of those Colossian human beings. The freedom, the dignity, the worth and value of Jesus Christ giving them their, their dignity and worth in his grace. Come to Christ then for the singular and unique blessing of monogamy. One man and one woman cleaving in reflection of the union between Christ and his bride. Cleaving in reflection of the union between Christ and his bride. The eschatological monogamy as Adam and Eve in the protological monogamy. That's heaven's pattern. That's the ethical standard of heaven itself. Glorious in prospect and wonderful in experience. The redemptive historical narrative of sexual purity and fidelity is rooted in an eschatological marriage union. Ephesians 5 extols this beautiful love story. It extols it as the pattern of Christian marriage unions. Sexual union is heaven-oriented in the eternal union above. Any adulteration of it destroys its Christ-centered purpose and relation. The sweetness of that bond 
between Christ and his bride is the invitation of the Christian marriage relationship. Taste that sweetness now. Taste it. Relish it. Delight in it. It was given to you for your good. But don't twist it. Don't pornography it. Don't pervert it. Don't reject and rebel against it. There is the moral pattern of your sexual moral life. All right, now that brings us to verse 8. Where he begins with the word put aside, which is another imperative, or put off as it's translated. And here I want to notice what he literally says in verse 9. So I'm skipping ahead just for a moment. The old self, as it's translated in the American Standard, is actually the old anthropon, the old man, literally, in the Greek. So put off the old man, and in contrast, notice verse 10, Put on the new. Now, Paul doesn't fill out anthropon in verse 10. It's implied. So he just says, put on the new, but man is understood. <clears throat> we want to return to this next time and talk about Paul's doctrine of this old man, new man relationship. But for the time being, we, we note here that he's contrasting something that's to be put off or put aside and something that's to be put on in verse 10. Well, how is this old, new shift possible? How is this old man, new man contrast or shift possible? New heart. A new heart. What doctrine? The doctrine of what? Regeneration, exactly. And the new heart comes from a regenerated heart a born-again heart, or a death-to-life transformation. It's a death-to-life transformation. You have died, put to death, live, come to life. That death-to-life transformation power is anchored in Christ's regeneration, his regeneration from death to new resurrection life. The narrative drama is crucial. Christ going through a death-to-life transformation in his crucifixion and resurrection, which is the bedrock of the power of that resurrection life to transform you from death to life, transform the Colossians from death to life. It is not simply making a decision or raising your hand or some other emotional response. It is rooted in what Christ has done and the power he has unleashed by his Holy Spirit for those that are joined to him in that death and resurrection transformation. So in that sense, we can say that Jesus was born again. He was born again from the dead. He was born again by resurrection from the dead. And that is the foundation. That's where you go to look for your regeneration. Not inside your soul to see whether you've got ten steps of rebirth. You look to the empty tomb of Jesus. That's where you look. You look to his regeneration and you say, I've been joined to Christ's regeneration. I've been born again in his being born again. 
That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's pressing you into union with that drama so that you're not stewing about whether you have enough of this for regeneration or enough of that for regeneration. You have Christ. That's enough. Lean upon his transformation. All right, now, the words here in verse 8. These are a little more tricky. I've suggested that at the opening, that some of this language is a little difficult to, to specify. Now, we, we understand the general terms, but uh, he's using these words for slightly different nuances. So uh, there's a challenge here, more of a challenge here than there is in verse 5. I've suggested that these are words which deal with verbal expression. And I think that is certainly clear in the last two instances, slander and abusive speech, or as some translate slander, it is literally in the Greek blasphemy. So that, that's something which is expressed by the mouth. But I do think that uh, these other words are also related to the tongue. Anger which is the translation of New American Standard for the first word, is translated wrath in verse 6. So this is an interesting uh, use of the term wrath here for anger and not repeating the same word that Paul had used in verse 6, even though the Greek repeats the very same Greek word. So my point is, what's the difference? Well, the difference is in verse 6, It is God's holy and just wrath. Here, it is man's unholy and unjust wrath or anger. It is human temper. Put it off. Put off this kind of unholy anger. Yes, Reba. Just reading this, I was thinking it's sort of progressive. From I'm angry to I'm furious to I... I Think of malice if I'm taking it, and then I, it comes out of my mouth. Uh, yes, uh, and that's a good observation on your part. But I think he's also expressing what the mouth is is doing. It's the spewing of that anger out of the mouth. Okay, it's the temper expressing itself by verbal by verbal language. Uh, I like the way you talked about wrath as a kind of. Uh, uh, coming forth or a rage. That's exactly what the next word wrath does mean. It means the fury of that verbal assault. Hot-tempered wrath and anger. Malice. I like that word again. Malice is an attitude of doing harm. And now my words are, I wish you ill. I wish to hurt you. I wish to harm you. I'm expressing that malice with my tongue. Now, it's true it arises in your mind, in your will, in your consciousness. But he's talking here about the expression of it. Go ahead, Ben. Is it grammatically necessary that abusive speech from your mouth modifies, qualifies all those terms? I, I think so. I think he's giving a list. Well, he's giving a list, yes. Are you necessarily connected with speech? In my opinion, yes. 
Now that, that of course is arguable. I've noted that some of this language is tricky because you're trying to get what's more specific. And, and those, there are those who do not think the first three deal with the tongue itself, deal with an attitude, deal with the intent. And I'm not denying it, intent is there. But I think he's trying to talk about that intent expressing itself verbally. And that's, that's the reason he's got an ascending series of expressions which are also ex, uh, expressive of speech. That's my opinion. <clears throat> but I recognize that there are those that don't agree with that, and it's all right if, if, if you think that the other three are nonverbal. There are those who say that if you don't express the anger and you allow it to eat you, you just allow it to eat you up inside. Yeah, yeah that's not... Well, it'd be another argument for the fact that this is expressive verbal. It's not just internal. Right. All right, so with respect to malice, it's this uh, wish to do harm, which brings us to slander. As I said, that's literally in the Greek text, blasphemy. So it would be slander against God, against the Lord Jesus, against the Holy Spirit. But it would also be defamation of other human beings slandering them by misrepresenting them, slandering them by refusing to accept them or believe them on the basis of their profession, etc., their declaration or their position, using language which would uh, remove their reputation or degrade it. Now, the abusive speech, as Ben pointed out, uh, is obviously verbal. So there's no difficulty here with what he means by this phrase. It is obscenity. It is vulgarity. It is, as the King James says, filthy language. It is language which degrades, abuses, and dehumanizes. It includes cursing and swearing and wishing others to be damned or wishing them to be consigned to eternal hellfire. All of that language is involved in abusive speech. A Christian is called to speak with a tongue of the heavenly arena. There is no one in heaven that would wish any other one in heaven to be consigned to eternal damnation. You have no right to wish any human being to be so consigned. The obscenities and vulgarities here are also part of abusive speech because the use of those terms, whether they're scatological, sexual, or otherwise, is intended to degrade, to dehumanize, to take away the dignity of the person whom you are assaulting with that vocabulary. Of course, cursing and swearing is taking God's name in vain. He is the only sovereign uh, power authorized to curse or an otherwise or otherwise uh, swear against a human life. This does not impact the swearing of an oath to tell the truth in a court of law. It's not involved here. <clears throat> but this reminds us that our yea may be yea and our nay be nay, and whatever is more of that can be abusive. And in this culture, abusive speech 
is far too prevalent. In this culture, abusive language within the home is all too prevalent. We are reminded, we are reminded that our tongue is to be guided by the blessing of the Lord, as James chapter 3 verse 9 reminds us. Your tongue, as you speak now, united to heaven's own speech and language, holy, pure, and good, not degrading, dehumanizing, and abusive. All right, we've had a workout on these ethical and moral elements, this ethical and moral paranesis of the Christian flows out of the indicative narrative of Christ's seat at the right hand of glory as the arena from which our imperative moral inclinations are to originate. When you're thinking of your behavior, think first of the kingdom of heaven. When you're thinking of your actions, think first of the kingdom of heaven. Because all of the moral principles from the Ten Commandments through the Old Testament, all of them are anchored in the kingdom of heaven. It was from heaven that God spoke forth those ten words. They are a reflection of the community and life in his heavenly arena. Begin with Christ in heaven and the Holy Spirit encourage you in your sanctification and in your conformity more and more unto the image and glory of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we need this, and for that reason you gave it by inspiration to your servant, the Apostle Paul. Even as the Colossian brothers and sisters needed it of old, and the Christian world needs it anew today, that our life hidden with Christ in God at your right hand is a life which has a new orientation and direction. Our behavior is directed and oriented towards your glory, and towards your character. O Lord, by your Spirit, sanctify us more and more, that we may be conformed increasingly to the heavenly glory of our risen Savior, through the power of his own transformation from death and darkness to life and light and immortality. We cling to you by the grace of your Son, through the indwelling of your spirit, hear us in our need and help us in our walk, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.